Okay, man, we're we're back on um the next episode of Law the Lobby with You podcast show. Uh, we've got Luke Saw with us again. And Luke, before I forget, let me let the podcast audience know about your website, please. My website. Well, I'm uh, when I'm not talking to as about Lord of the Rings and Tolkien uh, <laughs> for hours on end. I spend a lot of my time printmaking. Yeah. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Luke Prince. Uh, I've also got a website that's lukeprince.co.uk, but most of the most of the work you'll be able to find on Instagram. Uh, and there's some Tolkien related stuff on there. Um, I've been reading a lot of him lately, so uh, it's made its way into the art. Awesome. Very good. And I've seen some of your work on Instagram and it is amazing. Um, so, yeah, I highly recommended by uh, the lobby with you. <laughs> OK, so previous episode, we spoke about talking and I've, uh, and we spoke about some of the mythos, some of those themes of this kind of secondary world and the consistencies that would that were important about that. And even about sort of these um well, I wouldn't say fair, kind of fairy stories that that Tolkien viewed as, you know, really for adults and how he redefined the genre. Um, but one of the key themes we wanted to talk about today is another sort of trope and archetype that you see a lot in Tolkien's work, uh, but also you see it in a, in a lot sometimes in other works of fiction and you see it in the Bible as well. It's this idea of eucatastrophe. Now, um, when we're kind of talking uh, about eucatastrophe, what what are we really talking about when we say this word? Because a lot of our viewers and listeners on the podcast show might not be familiar with that word or its meaning. Yeah, so this is a it's a specifically Tolkien word, um, and to be honest, this is what we really wanted to chat about. But um, yeah, there's a lot of sort of introduction that we need to do first in terms of his work, but. Uh, that, that sort of makes sense of it all. Um, eucatastrophe is uh, it's a made-up word. Tolkien invents it um, at the end of his essay on fairy stories, which we covered a bit in the previous episode. Um, yeah, and it's a it's a compound word. So he's added "eu," which is the Greek word for good, um, "eu," a bit like in uh, Eucharist. Yeah, uh, or at the start of uh, evangelism from good news that 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 ev yeah. comes from uh, from good, and catastrophe, which a bit more obviously means um, disaster. Uh, mm -hmm. We we use that word in English. Um, so the good disaster is something that Tolkien believes is essential to a fairy story. It's sort of uh, it's right there at the heart, I guess. Um, he didn't invent the the idea, so it's used before yeah. his work, but he invents that word, I think, to refer to it. Ah, so this is a, like a really important thing to Tolkien. And obviously he's made, he's really highlighted this sort of concept um, marked by this sort of drama and disaster. So then fairy tales should be about a, what, a kind of good disaster? Yeah, so he says if, if drama is all about tragedy, uh, then fairy tales should be marked by almost the opposite. He reckons there's not a word for it, so he calls it eucatastrophe. Mm -hmm. um, 
some people might refer to this as the kind of similar to the idea of a happy ending. Um, yeah. But Tolkien says that true fairy tales don't have an ending. And that's something that's true if you read Lord of the Rings. Um, one of the things is that it's got loads of endings. Um, yeah. Like the end seems to go on forever. Um, but then when the story does finish, it's, it's quite abrupt and everything's not necessarily tied up. Um, mm which is lovely and, and mysterious and quite typical of, uh, of Tolkien. But um, I'll read the, the passage where Tolkien talks about Yucatastrophe yes, at, at do, the end yeah. of this essay, because his language is much lovelier than mine. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it'll help sort of set up some of the stuff we're going to discuss. So he says, yeah. at last, I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function. But the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things that fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist or fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is Evangelion, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy joy beyond the walls of the world as poignant as grief so yeah i had to read that in full because uh that gives me goosebumps pretty much every time so um <laughs> i thought we could chat about that a little bit more because this idea of the the joyful turn because yeah there's obviously one very obvious and brilliant example of eucatastrophe in tolkien's work and it's in the lord of the rings if, if you were to think of one thing that sums this up best in in that book what would you be thinking of i mean the the obvious you know ultimate one is is gollum falling um in on in mount doom into the fire yes absolutely um, that's the that's the one that kind of is and and i think peter jackson i think peter jackson's version is slightly different to um in the films to the book but i think the idea comes across in a very powerful and, and emotive way yeah, visually, I think he uh, he gets that right. I would agree that that's one of the points in Peter Jackson's films where I feel like uh, I have to uh, I have to sort of um, say it's sort of different to how I imagined. I guess. Okay. Um, yeah. A lot okay. of that has to do with um, this idea of eucatastrophe. Um, for those of you who haven't read Lord of the Rings, this is an enormous spoiler. Um, I imagine <laughs> you pro probably aren't listening to this if uh, if you if you haven't. But um, the plot of Lord of the Rings is that that Frodo has to take this evil ring to destroy it, and the, the only place in the world it can can be destroyed. And having mm. overcome all these obstacles and all these hardships, he's he's finally got the ring there. Um, and at that moment, the the ring's power over him it uh, overcomes him. And he claims it for his own. Uh, 
and so fails, I guess, in his his mission. But at that exact point, Gollum, who's this uh, warped creature who's followed them the whole way, who also desires the ring, uh, bites Frodo's finger off, claims the ring for his own, and in his moment of triumph, uh, slips and falls <laughs> into the uh, falls into the crack of doom, uh, and the entire quest is saved. Um, the thing that's important about that, I guess, is um, Tolkien talks about how you catastrophe reflects a glory backwards, which Lord of the Rings mm. does brilliantly. Um, that sort of chance moment with Gollum is is very powerful, the sort of victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, but throughout the story, lots of people have the opportunity to kill Gollum um, yeah. and have like good utilitarian reasons to, to do so, like it would make sense in terms of sort of personal safety, expediency, that sort of thing. There's, yeah. there's a brilliant um, conversation between Frodo and Gandalf at the start of the book, which is often quoted where Frodo says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And mm. Gandalf says, it's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Um, Gollum may have a role to play for good or ill before the end, but even the wise can't see all ends. Uh, mm. And uh, there's that line about you can't, you know, many, many live who deserve to die and many die who deserve life can you give that to them and mm, uh, yeah. and this is something that stays with Frodo throughout the story Sam in particular is not a fan of of Gollum mm. um, but many people I think Gandalf, Aragorn, Bilbo, Frodo um, even Sauron himself spares Gollum's life and in the end that yeah. is for the the sort of redemption and the saving of this entire quest and um, so we, mm. we see that mercy towards Gollum in a different light each of those people sort of play a small part in saving the the world um yeah so it's that quality that separates it from deus ex machina which uh is mainly used in a derogatory way these days to describe a sort of solution in a story to a problem that just ends up coming out of nowhere that's way too convenient um the the yeah. phrase comes from like greek theater uh where there was this convention called deus ex machina um a famous example is in a play by euripides when a god sends a chariot to rescue medea the the main character okay. um so that's where the term comes from this it was just used to describe something that happened in Greek theatre, um, mm. but now it's used to describe a sort of any kind of MacGuffin that gets introduced that's just, uh, it solves the <laughs> problem too easily. So the the eagles in Lord of the Rings are actually criticised sometimes for being a bit machina-like, and that's something okay. that Tolkien was worried about himself, that they often sort of seem to come out of nowhere and solve a problem. Mm. which I think he's able to resolve in the in the wider myth. But certainly if they picked up the fellowship and, and dropped the ring in the volcano, something <laughs> suggests would be a good idea. That would be a, an excellent example of deus ex machina. But um, yeah. I was wondering, like in, uh, in terms of chatting about it anymore, whether there was any other catastrophes in pop culture that you could uh, you could think of. It's it's really an interesting one because obviously there's this. I mean, you do think of like um, 
obviously like even in things like Star Wars, there's there's moments, isn't there? Um with uh you know Luke Skywalker on his mission and in his X Wing. Um and I think is it Yavin the way he's got where he's if I'm correct. Uh, are we talking about the original the original one? The original one, yeah. Yeah, definitely the Death Star Trench run. Which was uh I think in terms of the industrial light and magic way ahead of its times in terms of special effects as well. It still looks good, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. It still looks good. It's amazing. Like you just think like all the sets and models that they had to build and you just think just generational breakthrough in, 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 in camera work and special effects. Absolutely amazing. Um, and, uh, but yeah, Luke flying down there and, you know, he's, and obviously, like, you know, he's, he's happy to, you know, he's got the computer, the Navi computer. Is he going to use the computer or is he going to listen to that voice, that sort of ethereal voice of Ben Kenobi sort of thing? You know, what is he going to do? And, um, and you know, he's, and the, the clock is ticking down and it really is a sort of pivotal moment. And that was that's a, an obvious one, I think. That definitely has that kind of joyous tone because if I remember it right, the they're counting down for the Death Star clearing the the planet that's blocking yes. the rebel base from the Death Star and it will be able to fire on it as soon as it and it's as it clears it Luke's like the last X-Wing left and that's like he, he's got one shot like he's not going to be able to give it another go um, yeah so in terms of that sort of joyous turn from uh, sort of disaster to, to triumph I think that um, possesses some of that and um, Han plays a role in, in saving him as well. I always forget that. That um, yes, Han Solo does. has said that he's just going to go away. He doesn't want to fight. Um, yeah. But he comes back at the last to, to take out a couple of the TIE fighters and and, and uh, sort of clear the way for Luke a little bit. It's interesting with, with Han in that moment because it's like, if you think of like the eagle swooping in, in, in like Lord of the Rings and, and Han kind of just... Han Solo does a very similar thing. He swoops in with the Millennium Falcon and knocks a few out the way How and leaves. Nowhere, the yeah. You know, absolutely, really good. Like again, obviously, like very exciting. And uh, you know, if we were if we were old enough, kind of been and been able to go to the cinema and watching that film without, you know, in, when when it first was originally sort of aired in in well, in the states and all over the world, yeah. like what moment that would would be, would sort of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's still an amazing moment even now, but yeah, fantastic stuff. Um, we also had a, a conversation, Luke, didn't we, about about this idea in in war, in war of the Worlds. And can you expand upon that a little bit more? Yeah, so War of the Worlds um, is mainly famous more recently for the, the Tom Cruise film, but um, yeah. it was a, sort of a really seminal science fiction um, novel by H.G. Wells. And in that, Again, big spoiler if you've not read War of the Worlds, um, <laughs> these Martians take over the whole of um, the the UK, at least, um, are able to defeat what at the time is the sort of Victorian military, which you've got to remember in the Victorian period is the most powerful yeah. force in the world, the, the British Empire. Mm. And mm. Um, in the end... I think there's a, even a line in the end of that story where it says something like when all man's devices had failed, the Martians end up being wiped out by bacteria. They catch sort of the flu or the common cold or something. <laughs> it's kind of pretty per pertinent for us at the moment, actually, in the old uh, pandemic times. Uh, yeah, with COVID. 
they get wiped out by this virus rather than by by anything clever that humans do really um so yeah that sort of comes out of this it looks like everything's lost and the the solution um sort of comes from an unexpected place i guess yeah brilliant um another film that we that we spoke about as well which kind of shows this theme as well was the Shawshank Redemption now it's a very different type of film it's not a it's not a fantasy movie it's not a science fiction film at all um but it but it, it does have this theme very strongly at the end of the film and and I, I know I'm not sure if you're a fan of the movie I I really like the film um I think it's a Stephen King uh, yeah, it's Stephen, King novel. Stephen King novel. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. who directs it though. Have a look. Oh yeah, it's a good point. Um, but uh, it it does have this sort of joyful turn, doesn't it? And uh, I mean, I mean, the main character Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And his friendship with, with Morgan Freeman, a really emotive film. Yeah, uh, that possesses something of what. Tolkien talks about in terms of the new catastrophe reflecting its glory backwards as well I think you can see the whole film really as a, as, um, as something that sets the uh, the tone and the sort of sets everything up really for that yeah. really dramatic conclusion and that joyful turn um, and it's something that doesn't deny this catastrophe as well the rest of that film um Tim Robbins' experience in that uh, prison is um, mm. is horrible and sorrowful, um, but that gives the the joy at the end a greater poignance. Like uh, Tolkien talks about that idea of joy poignance as grief. Well, we might tend to think of those two things as opposites, but there's something profound when when those two come together and are, and are yeah. mingled that he seems to think is quite essential to to a catastrophe. Mm. brilliant um so moving moving forward ahead now yeah, yeah. um we we're looking looking and kind of i guess kind of delving a, li- a little bit more into this then um what about something that's really relevant at, at the moment you look at sort of the marvel franchise and you look at something like uh very popular films of Mar- of the avengers endgame Obviously, some of the fans of the podcast will be very much into uh, Marvel and DC. And I think Marvel sort of uh, forged ahead at the moment with their uh, cinematic universe. And so if you're looking at a Marvel TV show or a Marvel movie, especially something like Endgame, do you kind of see that sort of theme there as well? I think um, I think you do a little bit with that, with the particularly the Infinity War Endgame those two yeah. films together, you have yeah. the the complete catastrophe of the first film, um, yeah, and then something that sort of is engineered out of that um, disaster. And I guess that that all sort of comes up to that crescendo of um, again, if you've not seen Endgame, like it's it's been a year, so I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to give spoiler alerts. Last but... spoiler coming up guys so if you haven't seen endgame and you're really thinking you know what that's on my list i just haven't i've just been a bit busy <laughs> and I 
right into it. Pause it uh, now. Put, put, put podcast on, and then and once you finished it, you can come. You can come back to the podcast, and we'll. Indeed, he very much so. Right, so now you're back from finishing watching Endgame. You're um, back now. There's the bit of the <laughs> there's the bit at the end of Endgame, where they're kind of having to do the whole job of trying to defeat Thanos again. Thanos thinks he's got the Infinity Stones in in the gauntlet. He does the snap, and then he realizes they're not there, and um, he pans off to Iron Man's got them, and uh, he's able to to snap them and use them for good and and defeat the the force of evil in the in the story but that comes at tremendous personal sacrifice like uh he's got a wife and a family um yeah i i find i find the marvel films not particularly satisfying and so it um it it's difficult for me to compare them to tolkien but if i'm gonna try really hard which i want to um there is there is a kind of catastrophe in that in a in a good way we see particularly the arc of tony stark's character from being someone who is completely self-serving to someone who in the end is able to give up his own life for a greater purpose um there's something profoundly catastrophic about that and as we'll talk about later in terms of you catastrophe pointing to greater truths that idea of yeah. like greater love uh, as no man than this but he laid down his life for his brothers that's um that's what that's really all about there so i that resonates with me i guess um the idea of there being joy and sorrow at the same time there being sort of victory and loss um and that idea of turning something that's uh sort of catastrophic and was a disaster at the start of the film into something that is ultimately a victory, even though there are, there are still some things that are lost forever. Um, mm-hmm. I, that's quite yeah. Tolkienian. Uh, I just don't really like time travel films. So it's, it's not a satisfying way of, of doing it for me, but there we go. I found it. I found with that as well, like, because when they did the second film and it was obviously, cause it was a two part ending to the, to the, to the saga yeah um and the, so the second film they didn't they didn't jump back in time did they like it, it, it there was a kind of a reset but the reset was present a present day reset wasn't it it wasn't like they they jumped back and erased the past how many years it was before that moment which i thought at least in that regard there was some continuity um so yeah that was a i, I think um, a possible saving grace if you're not not the type on the podcast who likes to sort of them going back in time and completely rewriting everything and things going completely different um it did it did continue forward in that in that respect um another film kind of on the topic of marvel that i think you you might have been a bit of a fan of is uh is spider-man into the spider-verse am i correct on that oh yeah i love that film that's great mm. And uh, obviously, like, you know, that wasn't a live action film. I, I, I guess they I think they might be doing a live action version of it going forward, actually. But that one was an animated film as well. From, and uh, I did remember watching at the cinema. And it, yeah, I was, I was very impressed with it as well. Um, so we're going to have our first break now and give you a chance to grab a drink and, uh, and uh, come back to the podcast. 
when we are back with Luke, we will be focusing specifically a little bit more on Lord of the Rings and, and some interesting examples of what we've been talking about with you catastrophe. So uh, make sure that you're back with us very soon. Welcome back. Oh, good to be here. Very good. Yes. So um, we're now kind of talking a little bit about catastrophe in, uh, in terms of more examples in Lord of the Rings. And uh, yeah, so what are you thinking there, Luke? So the, the big catastrophe um, is obviously the one we've mentioned already. Um, yeah with Frodo and Gollum, I thought might take the cheeky opportunity. I've got my copy of Return of the King here. I could just ah. read, read the passage. I think we'll get away with that under fair use because we're, uh, we're using it as part of the discussion. Brilliant. Yes, I don't, I don't think we'll be sued. And, uh, yeah, I'm hoping I that think we're good. So, um, <laughs> yeah, this comes from the chapter called Mount Doom towards the end of Return of the King, um, mm. which is the third book of the Lord of the Rings. Um, yes. And this is after they've gone into inside Mount Doom, into the crack of Doom, and um, Frodo has claimed the the ring for his own. Mm. Uh, the fires below awoke in anger. The red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly, Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw up towards his mouth. His white fangs gleamed and then snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if it verily was wrought of living fire. Precious, 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 Gollum cried. My precious, oh my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail, precious, and he was gone. So that's, wow. the, uh, that's the big one. Um, but like we've said, it, um, that moment sort of illuminates lots of other sort of similar times yeah um, throughout the rest of the story um i don't know if you can i obviously i've got a list so uh, <laughs> but if you could think of any of the off the top well, of your head that sort yeah, of... i mean obviously we kind of, i know we spoke about the eagles and whether the eagles actually um swooping in and saving the day was either a good idea or a bad idea and and uh, the dynamics of of why they couldn't really do that um i guess like i am i mean i do I am a big uh, Aragorn fan, and uh, you know when 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 he's uh, the Corsair ship sails into into Gondor, uh, but you see like the Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. That's a really interesting um, sort of powerful moment. Uh, moment. Um, I think it, that was kind of leads to the sort of that battle on the Pelennor Fields, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, that one's really powerful because. Uh, Denethor, the steward of Gondor, has seen it in his um, in his seeing stone and has despaired. And yet, there's that mm. moment where Aragorn sort of unfurls his banner at the front of 
one of these ships, um, which sadly isn't in the in the film. They do it slightly differently. It's fine. Um, yeah. And it's that moment when you realise, oh, actually, the thing that we thought was going to be a, um, a catastrophe, the disaster, the thing that was going to lose the battle is actually the the salvation, the 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 thing that's going to save it. Wow, how awesome is that? So good. Um, and uh, can you think of any kind of examples? You're talking about like strong characters, female characters, female characters. Do you think there's any strong female um, characters Uh that really have a moment in Lord of the Rings? I love it. Um, Well, there's, as you well know, there's only three real female characters in in Lord of the Rings. There's a a couple that I think, um, I think with Arwen, you could say her marrying Aragorn is um, you catastrophic in a big overarching sense because... She she gives up her immortality and that sort of thing for the, wow, yeah. the ennoblement of um, of Aragorn and for for Middle Earth as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. I think Galadriel um, is a really good example in the uh, light that she gives to to Frodo. Yeah, that, that's that that um, the light of Erendil in that glass sort of serves as a kind of catastrophic sort of motif i guess especially in that chapter in in shelob's lair where they're fighting the the giant mm. spider but yeah. the i think the one the character the female character that most people relate to because she is the most human is uh eowyn oh wow rohan yeah. um and her real um you catastrophic moment comes when she rides into battle with uh the rohirrim uh, to the Pelennor fields, this same battle that we were just talking about in, yeah. in front of Minas Tirith. And she does that really out of despair. She thinks that there's no hope. And so she might as well go out in a way that will be recorded in song rather than defending the women and children at Edoras mm. after everyone else has been wiped out. Um, mm. And that's that's obviously not a good thing. It's, it's without any kind of hope Um but that that decision is worked for good through this yeah. uh, this confrontation she has with the the Lord of the Nazgul, the greatest of Sauron's servants on this battlefield. Mm. Um, and I've also got that passage, um, so I might oh yes, please. I might just read that. What a yeah, this, this is a treat for the uh, the Lord of the podcast show. I, I, I said this before that yeah, you guys are being treated with these episodes with Luke Saw, and I wasn't lying to you. Yes, Luke, when you're ready, go ahead. Um, so, yeah, Eowyn has ridden into battle. She's disguised as a man because women don't do battle in, in Tolkien's world. Um, mm. And in the book, um, Mary doesn't realise who she is. He thinks yeah. that he's this character called Dernhelm, which they, they change in the in the films, which is, is also fine. But... Um, mm just that sort of needed as background info because in this scene yeah. in the book mary doesn't quite know who she is yet mm-hmm. uh so yeah i'll read from this passage here Brilliant. A, a sword rang as it was drawn do what you will but i will hinder it if i may hinder me thou fool no living man may hinder me then mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest it seemed that Dernhelm laughed and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. 
Eowyn I am, Eamon's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The winged creature screamed at her, but the ringwraith made no answer and was silent as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. He opened his eyes and the blackness was lifted from them. There, some paces from him, sat the great beast, and all seemed dark about it, and above it loomed the Nazgul, like a shadow of despair. A little to the left, facing them, stood she whom he had called Dernhelm, but the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her, and her bright hair, released from its bonds, gleamed with pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, grey as the sea, were hard and foul, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Oh, so good. That, that's powerful. That's really, really powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, that is, that is, that is, wow. That, the, the poetry of that, the beauty written in that, absolutely amazing. He's good with the words, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely amazing. So Eowyn, on this sort of technicality, is able to defeat the witch king because yes of course prophecy of uh no man may hinder him but she still needs to be healed of this um this despair that she has and uh and sort of that that forms kind of the rest of her her story yes wow very good i think i think we've covered um this this kind of you know this idea in the lord of the rings and 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 podcast viewers you've been treated today to that 